0: Our reading is from one Samuel eighteen, verses one to nine. In these Bibles, that is on page two hundred ninety. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as as himself. From that day, Saul kept. David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic even and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased, this pleased all the troops, and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. And they danced, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he take? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David.
1: Thank you, Patricia. My name is Matthew. I'm on the staff here, and I've been really enjoying... There's still a fairly new series of sermons looking at the story and the life of King David. So far, we've looked at two major events in David's life. We've looked at him being chosen by God as Israel's rightful future king, and him, still as a very young man, managing to kill a massive champion of an opposing army. And tonight we're slightly changing tack. We're not looking at an event in David's life. We're looking at kind of a subplot through his story. We're looking at a friendship that he had. And I'm really excited about this story. To be honest, I've been excited about this sermon since I got the email asking me to do it because I love this subplot through this book of 1 Samuel and going into 2 Samuel. I love it because it's a story of a great friendship. And to be honest, there's bits of the Bible that are hard to see how they're relevant to me. But an example of a truly great friendship is quite easy to see how that could be something that I could try and get better at. That's easy to see. I also love it because it's about a covenant, a deal, a set of promises between two people. And the Bible is really big on covenants. It's a major theme in the Bible, is the covenants God makes with his people. And sometimes that seems quite abstract and hard to get my head around. But a deal, a covenant, a pact between two humans, that I stand a chance of kind of getting my head around. And once I understand A covenant in that context, maybe I can have a better chance of understanding a covenant with God. And finally, I love it just because it's a great story. And it's a great story that doesn't even end in death. It's a great story that ends in adoption. But first of all, we need to do some groundwork, because this story was not set, did not happen in 21st century Britain it happened in the Middle East basically as the Bronze Age was turning into the Iron Age and the world there and then was violent small wars were very common and raiding between people groups was even more common it was a violent age and you needed protection and you needed to provide protection if there was no one to protect your family and you you would get raided your sheep and your cattle and your goods and everything you owned would get stolen and quite possibly you'd either be taken as a slave or you'd be just be killed it was a violent time and people needed protection and that shaped how they thought about their rulers Their rulers were not primarily, in their eyes, there to provide infrastructure or relief in times of famine or natural disaster. Their rulers weren't even mainly there to enforce the law. Their rulers were mainly there to protect them from other people. Their rulers did some of that other stuff as well, they did some infrastructure. They did some looking after their people practically. They did some enforcing the law. But the primary purpose of a ruler, of a king, was to protect his people. And he didn't do that by sitting at home on a nice fancy chair, telling his armies to go out and do it. He'd do it with a spear in hand, probably a shield in the other hand, riding a chariot. Kings in those days led armies into battle, and that was how they protected their people, and that's how those people thought about their rulers. And of course, that shaped how they thought about who would be ruler next. It wouldn't automatically be the current king's eldest son, particularly not if that eldest son wasn't likely to be able to do the leading the army thing it might not even be any of the king's children if none of them could provide that protection. In a world where the primary job of a ruler is leading the army, whoever the army chooses to follow is going to be the next ruler. If the army didn't really, wasn't impressed by any of the king's sons but was impressed by someone else, that someone else is likely going to be the next king. Now, in terms of rulers, they had Saul. And Saul, for all of his faults, for all of him putting himself before God, for all of his ego and his paranoia, he was good at leading an army. He was good at fighting, and he was good at protecting his people, and he did that. He won more battles for his people than he lost. And in terms of sons and future heirs, he had Jonathan, and Jonathan was probably even better at that. Jonathan was popular, and he was talented as a fighter. There's a story where Jonathan and one one servant go, and they manage to kill a whole load of Philistine enemies on their own. And then there's a story where Saul makes a stupid promise, oath, he makes a stupid oath that none of his army will eat anything until they've won a battle, which is just a really stupid plan. But that's what he says, But Jonathan doesn't get told that. Jonathan gets hungry, eats some honey that he happens to pass by, and then when Saul gets angry, it's the ordinary soldiers who stick up for Jonathan. And Saul decides to relent on his anger because of the ordinary soldiers. Jonathan is a great warrior, and he's popular. He is everything a king at the end of the Bronze Age could want as a son. Now, I don't want you to think that this was just a brutal, barbaric people. They weren't simple. As well as that necessary violence that was built into their cultures to survive, they also loved music. Music was incredibly important to this people. In so many of their stories, there's mention of singing and dancing. And of course, this is... A long time ago, they didn't have Spotify. If they wanted to listen to music, they needed a musician. So they loved music and they valued musicians and skill with musical instruments. They were also a very expressive people. When I said it wasn't modern Britain, it also wasn't modern British culture at all. In fact, I'm not aware of British culture ever being like this, because we've got this concept of a stiff upper lip. They didn't have that. If they were upset, they would rip their clothes and cry. If they were happy, they'd dance and cry. And if they saw a friend, they'd be affectionate towards them and kiss them. Very expressive, affectionate culture. And also, they were honorable often to the point of stupidity. If they made a promise, they tried to keep it. One of the ongoing things that happens in the Bible in this period of history is someone makes a stupid promise and then there's a story about whether they decide to keep that stupid promise or not. It happens time and time again. Keeping their promises mattered to these people. So they were brutal in many ways, but they weren't simplistic or simple. They were a rounded culture. So we've got Saul and Jonathan, the great king and the great future king, presumably. And then onto the story walks David. David, at this point, has just killed Goliath. His first great victory. And David is musically talented, handsome and popular just had massive success he's athletic music musical handsome and popular i wouldn't blame jonathan if he'd been jealous if this popular athletic fighter son of the king suddenly had someone who was just better turn up i'd understand if jonathan had been jealous but instead the bible says that they were one in spirit And that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And they make a covenant together. We're not told the details of the covenant, but I think it's essentially David and Jonathan were friends and declared that they were going to be best friends forever. I think that's what it is. They declared they were going to be BFFs, always be friends. But then trouble starts. Because David's popular, because David's great. David, it seems, is one of those people who occasionally crop up in history who are great at many things. Leonardo da Vinci or Benjamin Franklin. David seems to be in that set as he's a great warrior and a great leader and a great musician. And Saul, not Jonathan, Saul gets jealous. To be honest, if people were singing a song saying that Saul had killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, I can under- once again, I can understand why Saul got jealous. And he wasn't entirely wrong to be jealous in a way because David was a threat. It's not entirely clear whether Saul knew that God had picked David. But on an earthly sense, Even if God hadn't picked David, David was still a threat to Saul's reign and to Jonathan's reign after him because David was popular and he had every talent required to be a good king. And the army could just choose to make David king at some point if they wanted to. Saul sends David on missions. David succeeds. Saul gets more jealous. Saul... Gets so jealous he goes for the obvious solution and just throws a spear at David in the end. Whilst David is playing a musical instrument. And David still manages to dodge the spear whilst playing a musical instrument. I'm assuming he stopped playing at that point, but it doesn't say. And David and Saul then sends David on more missions, more dangerous missions, it seems. I'm not sure whether he was hoping David would just get killed, whether we just hoping that David would fail and lose popularity because of it. But David succeeds on the missions because God is helping him. David achieves more and more. Saul gets more and more jealous as David gets more and more popular. Saul comes up with a rather interesting plan to kill David by promising David... Saul's daughter is a wife, but only if David goes out and collects Philistine body parts. And so David and his men go out and they manage to kill enough Philistine enemies to collect the required body parts and bring them back. And that plan fails as well. And then Saul comes up with the worst plan yet. He tells Jonathan and all of his attendants to kill David. And Jonathan has a choice to make. Jonathan is told by his father to kill David. Now, on the one hand, Saul is king, Saul is uh, is Jonathan's father, and David is a threat to Jonathan ever getting the throne himself. On the other hand, David and Jonathan are friends and they've made a covenant. Jonathan's got a choice to make. And he goes and tells David to hide. David hides. And Jonathan goes to Saul and argues and argues for David to be allowed to live. And this time he manages to persuade Saul to not try and kill David. David for some reason, continues to serve Saul. War breaks out again, and David gets sent on yet more missions. He has yet more success, and Saul gets even more jealous. And once again decides to throw a spear at David while he's playing an instrument. And once again, he misses. I'm not, the Bible says that Saul's a very talented warrior, but he misses with a spear a lot. but Saul wants David dead because David's a threat. And that this time it changes. Saul sends men to go and kill David. David, with the help of his wife, Saul's daughter, escapes from his own house. And then with the help of the prophet Samuel, he evades the men following him. By the way, I'm... Cutting out the details of those stories was the hardest part of writing this sermon because those two stories are hilarious. Please do go and read them. But David's on the run and he goes to the one person he can trust. Saul is hunting him down and the one person David can trust is Saul's son. So he goes to Jonathan and Jonathan proves trustworthy if a little naive. Because Jonathan says, there's no way that my father would be trying to kill you without telling me. He, he says, my father shares everything with me, he would have told me. Saul has apparently learnt that not to tell Jonathan that he's going to kill David, because last time that didn't help. But Jonathan says that this can't be. My father would have told me. And so David and Jonathan come up with a slightly convoluted plan, but essentially, David hides in a field. Jonathan goes and talks to the king and tries to find out if the king is trying to kill David. He finds out basically yes. Jonathan comes back and re- reveals David. Not the point I would have chosen for that exclamation mark. <laughs> <laughs> when Jonathan is talking to Saul and trying to persuade Saul not to kill David again and has helping David, Saul realizes that Jonathan's on David's side and Saul starts ranting at David. He calls... So uh, Jonathan, a shame, and the son of a wicked woman, and all kinds of foul things. And then, surprise, surprise! Saul throws a spear, and surprise, surprise, he misses again. But Jonathan siding with David gets Saul so angry that he tries to kill his son. And Saul correctly in the middle of that rant says that David, if David's alive, Jonathan will never get the throne. Whilst David lives, Jonathan's not going to get the throne. And so Jonathan goes back to David and tells him this. Jonathan bows to, David bows to Jonathan three times. And they kiss And they weep. And then they go their separate ways. Jonathan back to his father and the life of a prince. And David on the run. David has lots of adventures in 1 Samuel. Do read it. It's fantastic. But they only seem to meet once more after this. In chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, Saul is again chasing David. As David is on the run. And Jonathan comes to David and Jonathan says to David that David will be king. And Jonathan says that he will serve him. Jonathan says that he will serve David when David is king and that Jonathan will be David's right-hand man, his second-in-command, his general. David's Love that he receives from Jonathan is so great that Jonathan is willing to give up the throne, willing to give up his family, and just serve him because they're friends and they made a commitment to each other. They don't seem to meet again after that. The next time we hear about Jonathan is in chapter 31, the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And we hear that Saul and some, a few of his sons have died in battle. Including Jonathan. Jonathan and Saul and two other sons of Saul have died in battle. And David hears this and David weeps and grieves. This man who was hunting him Trying to kill him is dead, and David doesn't seem to care because his friend is also dead. 2 Samuel, which is mostly the story of David's time as king, starts with David lamenting his friend's death and Saul's death. It starts with a lament. There's, as I was looking at this story, four things about the friendship stood out to me. The first is just how loving it is. Affectionate love. That's where it all starts, with Jonathan loving David as himself, with them being one in spirit. It's such, and every time they meet, it's affectionate. There's such great love between them. The next thing I notice is, is it's committed. They have this love and then they declare that they want this love to last and they make it intentional. They decide they are going to be friends. And it does last. It's a la- friendship that lasts. It lasts through troubles and Time's on the run and being apart for a long time, being separated, being on opposite sides of a conflict. This loving, committed relationship, this friendship, lasts. And it costs. It's a costly friendship. Jonathan loses. apparently seems to lose affection from his dad. He loses, he's willing to lose his future on the throne. He's willing to give up everything for David. He even puts himself in danger for David. By the way, if you're going, looking at the list and going, that seems a very sided, what one sided set of costs, there's one part of the story that I haven't told yet. A little epilogue that I'll get to in a minute. But It's a loving friendship, it's a committed friendship, it's a friendship that lasts and it's costly. It's the kind of friendship I want to be a part of. And all the wisdom that I've got about how to be part of a friendship like that is if you want to receive those from someone, if you want to receive in a friendship love, commitment and over a long time and them sacrificing for you, you need to be able to give it as well. It's intentional. They found that they had affection for each other and then made a decision about that they was going to stick to it. And then they committed to it. I look at the story of Dave and Jonathan and it's one of those stories that just makes me want to do better. I also said that This is a story that helps me think about God's covenant with us. Because those things are things I can understand on a human level. I can look at the story of Jonathan and David and their commitment to each other and see the love in it and how long it lasts and the costs paid for it. But God's commitment to us is very similar if you struggle to get your head around God making a covenant with his people, know that all those things, all those, that friendship stuff that we can understand between David and Jonathan applies from God to us. Whenever God in the Bible talks about his people, so often it's an affectionate language. And it's with such commitment And often if God's annoyed with his people in the Bible, it's because they're not being as committed as he is. And it lasts through the Bible and onwards to today. And the best thing, as I said, that for a friendship you need to be able to give as much as you get or be willing to. It's not always going to be even at any one time. If you're, but with, G, with God, the cost doesn't have to be even. Because Jesus' his sacrifice on the cross paid the price of that covenant. It is the ultimate cost paid. And not saying that being a Christian and having a relationship with God won't cost you, but it's not even. Once you understand God's covenant with us, actually giving cost to God doesn't feel so weighty. I think this story helps me think through God's covenant with us. I also said that this is a story that doesn't end in death but in adoption. And that's that last little bit of the story. After Saul and Jonathan and some of the other sons of Saul who died one of Jonathan's other sons ends up briefly becoming king a person called Ishbosheth. Not surprised that name didn't last. But Ishbosheth becomes king, and David yet becomes king of a different part of the country, and there's a little civil war. Eventually, David is in charge, and he takes Jerusalem, which Saul never quite managed to do. And David has finally got a stable kingdom. The throne is stable at last. And David asks about the previous royal family. Normally, if a new king asks about the previous royal family in this time a violent time that doesn't bode well for the previous royal family because that sounds like a king who wants to make sure there are no challenges left that's what that sounds like at first but this is David David hears about Mephiboleth another name I can see why it died out Mephiboleth was Saul's son. Five years old when Saul and Jonathan died. And in the rush and the panic of being safe, Mephiboleth got dropped in, as they were trying to escape. Him and his nurse were trying to escape. He fell and his legs got broken and they never feel properly. And so he couldn't use his either leg properly in a time when if you couldn't fight or work the fields you, you had no parent future. But David hears about Mephibosheth and calls Mephibosheth to him. Mephibosheth and his, uh, travels to him falls at David's feet and David adopts Jonathan's son who can't walk properly is a, and is not going to be any benefit to David. Might even potentially be someone that David's enemies could rally around in theory but David adopts him. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his own sons. David's love and commitment for Jonathan lasted even past Jonathan's death. And David was still paying a cost and looking, trying to pay the cost of that friendship even after there was no chance of Jonathan paying any more. I think the only way I could come up with to end looking at kind of David and Jonathan was to just read out the lament that David wrote about Jonathan and to us a lot of the language here seems really odd but I think if we, we can maybe tune that out and just hear the sadness and the love and the passion a gazelle lies slain on your height, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the mountains of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Here, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished.